Welcome back to Building a Fighter. My name is Dr. Austin Shane, sports chiropractor in Scottsdale, Arizona. With me, as always, badass strength coach in Denver, Colorado, Alex Friedman. Today, we're going to be talking about the difference between looking at science, looking at artistry, looking at looking at your athlete in general and figuring out what's best for them and trying to combine the lenses of the scientific aspect of looking at research with how does that athlete already move in the first place and what's the best thing for them? So Alex, this is a topic that we disagree on, not always, (laughs) but for some of the parts, um, kick us off. This is a topic that I was annoying Austin about right before this podcast. So now we get to debate it live. So here we go. We'll take it to the audience. Um, really what started this argument is, is Austin claims a lot of research based and scientific driven evidence of biomechanically efficient movement, making an athlete better. And my kind of nuance that I bring is the context and the, um, skill level in a certain area may not necessitate a more quote unquote correct approach, right? Because yes, we know, let's use Austin's example from earlier. Let's use keeping your traps down is a more efficient way or centrating your scap is a more efficient way to pull or for shoulder health and throwing a punch. Like you can get more muscle activation that way. You can get a more biomechanically efficient movement out of that. Now, let's say we have an athlete that has always had elevated traps and throws their punch in that either irregular or quote unquote inefficient manner, you know, and and depending, like I said, on the context and timing of this, fixing that issue should not be a priority or um, would actually create a decrement to performance, right? And so even if you do it well, even if you implement the exact right steps of Let's fix your shoulder movement. Let's make it more biomechanically efficient. Let's get more strength and power out of it, et cetera. I still think given an athlete's lived experiences and given an athlete's adherence to their own technique and style, they could in fact be worse off even though they're more textbook or technically accurate. Yes. And what my preface to all of this is, I understand that side of the argument. Uh, People are born with, like we talk about it all the time with my wrestling. I'm not a textbook wrestler. I do things differently. Sure. But but where I come at with this argument and, and where I see it fall apart a lot, like I equate this type of argument to like pain science. When I argue with pain science people about different aspects of biomechanical work, the thing is, Athletes, my, my issue with the let the athlete be the athlete thing is when an athlete, they just keep doing the same thing. They throw an overhand right with their trap, just shrugged up into their fucking ears the entire time. But they also have a history of every time they throw that punch, they have a pinch. And it's my ass that has to try to fix that. And I'm not going to be able to fix that if they just keep doing this technique wrong and wrong and wrong and wrong and wrong. And that's going to keep irritating everything. That's going to put them out for let's say that's going to put them out for two months where I'm going to have to try to fix this. And then they're just going to go back to the same technique over and over and over again, and just keep picking the scab, keep picking the scab, keep picking the scab. And if you just keep picking that scab, a, that's going to decrease the amount of time that you can get paid for the job that you're doing, but also B it's, it's going to make you not want to do that movement over and over again, because pain causes you to not want to do shit unless you're a masochist. Pain typically 
puts you away from something, which means you're not going to throw that punch, which it could be your best thing. You might have a fucking killer overhand right, but if it pinches and hurts every time you throw it, you're not going to fucking throw it, which means why don't we just change that form a little bit, try to increase the biomechanical efficiency, and then try to take away the pain with which you're feeling so that we can do it right. Sure. I agree with that assessment and that may be the right course of action, but it also may not be because what if, what about our argument as far as high performance is not always healthy? They're going to want to throw that overhand if it gets them a 50K bonus on repeat, right? You're going to still throw that overhand if you're knocking people out with it. If it's landing every time, like, yeah, you might limit it in practice in this and that, but perhaps that's the price that you have to pay. Um, so I think again, but, it's it, but is one fifty k bonus worth not being able to throw that punch for two years after that? So six one, fights potentially. One fifty k bonus is worse than changing your technique in a fight, never landing that punch again, and getting cut. So again, for it's sure. all in the severity. Like um, I think it, it's super contextually driven, that which adds to the fuel to the fire in this argument, but. What's the severity of your pain when you throw that overhand? Like, like when you throw that overhand, right? Does it make you stop and shake out your arm and say, fuck, I can't spar anymore? Or when you throw that overhand, right? There's a really subtle kind of pinch. And then as long as we do our maintenance biomechanical work, I'm not going to change how I throw that overhand, right? Because again, I mean, we said it on repeat, high performance isn't healthy. Like we know that some of the postures in, in MMA are going to predispose you to more injury risk period, right? 100%. But does that mean that we don't try to make them better is the argument that I'm getting at. But the argument that also you're getting at is you don't know if that makes them better. No, it makes them more efficient, makes their shoulder not hurt as much. If we do, if we keep picking a scab over and over again, it's it's, Santino yells at me all the time when I fucking say this, the definition of insanity is not (coughs) doing the same thing over and over again and getting the same result. But that's the, that's what people say. If you just keep doing the same thing over and over and over again, it just keeps hurting and hurting and hurting. I'm in a unique position where I get to see the performance side. I don't disagree with you. High performance isn't fucking healthy, but that uh, it's a cop-out answer in my mind to say that we're not going to make it as healthy as we possibly can. If I just hide behind the fact that high performance isn't healthy and I don't want to try to fix it, I don't want to try to make it as healthy as I can, that's a cop-out to me, to you, to every single other person in this entire field. To where that's just saying, oh, we can't make it better. So why would we even try? It's not worth it. Biomechanics aren't worth it. Why would we even try? That's what I get with the pain science people when I talk to them about this. And to me, that's that's literally just a cop out. And you're saying you don't want to put the extra work in to try to make it perfect. You don't want to be great at that. And I'm not saying you, obviously, because I'm talking to you, but I'm saying the people I talk to about this typically, that's what I think in my head when they say that type of thing. Because sure. it sounds like they're not trying to get better or fix a problem. Right. But I think that's also extrapolating my position to the end game, right? I'm not I'm not saying that we should never try and change a biomechanically inefficient movement. I'm not saying we shouldn't try and make your training uh, phase or your, your exercise technique or even technical technique, uh, tactical technique more efficient. I'm not saying that's always the case. I'm saying there's room for error in both senses. There should be times where we address the biomechanically inefficient movement, change the technique, and that's genuinely going to make the athlete better, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, I, that's, this is the art of coaching to me. This is the, the non-scientific part that you have to observe, analyze, and then action as a coach. Is this 
change worth the risk of the success we've already had. And like, and sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. I'm, I am firmly against the idea that it is always in the athlete's benefit. It is not always in the athlete's benefit. That's 100% benefit. true. That's correct. Yeah. Right. And so, so again, I'm not saying that we should always like, why does black come against men? I'm not saying we should throw the baby out with the bathwater. I'm saying that you have to go from a case by case, a context by context basis and really analyze what you're doing to that athlete. Because again, in my experience, I've met a ton of coaches that are super gung ho. We're going to change all this. We're going to reinvent the wheel, Mm -hmm. you know, and And it makes them worse. Your athletes are worse (laughs) off from it, you know, and, and that that's, I feel the benefit that I've gained from a strength and conditioning sense in being so heavily invested in the technical and tactical game of my fighters. I learn what is their pacing in their fight? What is their best weapons and how do we lean into their superpower, not handcuff them, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and I'll even do it in, in a live session where my athlete is not, you know, let's say trap bar deft deadlifting the exact biomechanically perfect way, but he's hitting his numbers on a gym where there's relatively low injury risk. He's, gaining confidence from this session. And that is more important than me saying, Hey, let's, let's fix that posture. That, that's kind of good, but let's do this. And then now we change his posture. Now he's not hitting the numbers on the gym where now he's getting that stimulus of a negative reaction. Now he's not as confident, yeah, you know, like no, for sure. Again, in the small, those are small details. Sure. But it's a, it's a risk reward. It's a, a pros cons that you're constantly having to weigh in your head. Like, and again, there's ways to do both. There's ways to, to meet in the middle on that. But again, I have a hard time saying that the change is always necessary. Yeah. I, I, I think what you said earlier is a hundred percent accurate. Context is everything. Right. There's no, there's no reason with five weeks left in a fight camp to try to change the way an athlete throws an overhand, right? That's not going to fucking happen. Mm-hmm. It, there's, there's no way that an elite trained athlete in five weeks can learn a new motor pattern in that amount of time. Yeah. But that's called being that, that doesn't mean you don't try to do it over the course of a long-term situation. I'm looking in the long term, Like, like you said, I'm looking at the end game. Everything I think about is end game. How can I make this athlete the best they possibly can by the time I'm done working with them or by the time they are done fighting or done playing football or done with whatever their sport is? And then so with that, I want to make sure that they're trying to do things as best as they can to fit their athlete profile. Some people like one of my athletes, he like biomechanics get thrown out the window with anima- anatomical variants. One of my athletes has an extreme like a legitimately flat lumbar spine doesn't have any lordotic curve in the lumbar spine. So I have to modify everything I have him do in order to be based around that. Biomechanics get thrown out the window. I have to adapt on the fly. The same thing applies with his sport <coughs> training. It needs to be adapted on the fly. But that doesn't mean that I don't try to find what works best for his body. That doesn't mean I don't try to f- try to find that work what works best. And I think that's what our the main argument that I have with people like when I talk about this stuff is you have to try, you, you have to try to do what's, what's best for the athlete. And that's called being a good coach on figuring out when the timing is to put it in there. But that doesn't mean you don't do it. That means that you have to figure out when to do it and make sure that that's the right step forward. If that athlete doesn't have shoulder pain and they're shrugging their shoulder up as they're going, 
there's no injury risk or there's no previous history of injury. There's no anything involved. There's no pinching in the AC joint, whatever. Then I don't necessarily need to change that. I can try to just train them. Hey, let's centrate this gap as they're training. It's not as glaring of an issue, but if that athlete's coming to me with an injury history of seven shoulder shoulder injuries over the last five years, well then fuck, I need to change that or else their career might be one year left. Like they, they might not be able to fight because of a debilitating shoulder injury, or maybe it gets so bad to the point that maybe the labrum just decides to finally just th- that's the last straw, the labrum tears or something like that. And that's a nine months that you're out for minimum of six months with that. Right. right like right. I, it's a, it's a weird thing where I have this internal struggle in my head all the time, but it literally just comes down to, you have to know your athlete and you have to just put in the extra effort of, I need to try to make that athlete the best they possibly can in front of me, knowing that they're never going to be perfect but I need to try to do what's best for them. And I can't just say, oh, high performance isn't healthy. I'm not going to fix that. And I'm also on the opposite end of the spectrum. I can't make them perfect. No matter what, nobody's going to be perfect. You have to be perfect for your body type. And that comes down to being a good coach, which you and I am, to figure out what's what's best for that athlete in front of me. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I think you're simply changing the context and, and then figuring out the best way forward or you're analyzing what context is in front of you and then analyze the best way forward. So I, I agree with you on the injury history part. And then I agree with you too on the, the context and the timing part. But one thing that you said in there was, you know, five weeks out from a fight, this is not the ch- time to change his technique on an over or their technique on an overhand. Um, it doesn't mean that I'm not going to do it. It does mean that you're not going to do it in that context. So right. yeah, I, I'm not going to do it in five weeks, but I might do it after camp. Sure. And again, or at least bring it up to the coach. So contextually specific. Right. And then the other thing that I think about too, is like, there's a middle ground for this as well. Like, are there things, there's certainly things in MMA that we plan for, or just even in daily life for, for movement patterns that we plan for that are unavoidable and going to happen. And then we try and combat them and address them through our strength and conditioning. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so that's the, I think the, the more middle ground piece of this is like, I know a lot of my wrestlers are going to have shrug shoulders and, um, extended necks. Like that's just going to happen. Right. And they're going to have some problems for that. So I can pre plan or I can see that trend and address it through some net correctives. I can address it through planks. I can address it through, um, static isometric holes or use an iron neck or whatever. I can plan for that ahead of time. even if I'm not going to change how they technically perform at their sport too. So I think there are some non-negotiables. It's just, I think we're arguing a lot in in the gray area, like what do you do? And then I think we're also kind of cherry picking when we're right versus when the other person is right too. But there's middle ground and then there's two extremes and, and same thing. We always say you can't sell out for this exclusive methodology of thinking. Right. I can't, you, you literally just said, I can't perfect everybody. I can't try and make everybody move super pretty. A lot of, some people do, some athletes do. And a lot of people, um, it's great. It looks impressive and it looks (laughs) impressive and, and maybe they're just have that genetically in them. But at the same time, I can't, um, just throw biomechanics out the window and say, none of it matters. Yeah. You know, I think currently in our state of, you know, exercise and our state of, um, 
supporting roles and, and sports performance were a little too heavy handed on the, the textbook exercise demonstration and execution. I think there is a lot more room for variance and in, in the things that you were saying and creative type of movement patterns, or even a little bit more sports specific work. Um, the problem is when people go all in on that, they talk really loud about, it. you know, we, we have to offer some variability. And I think there is a lot of value in variability. I think there's a lot of value in sports specific movement. I think a lot, there's a lot of value in general movement. I think there's a lot of value in anatomically correct or textbook quote unquote biomechanics, but the biggest value of any of that stuff is applied in the right context. Mm-hmm. Right, well, that, I th- that, go ahead. I was about to say, I think, I think what you were talking about and thinking on the extremes, a lot of the times when we approach this topic, we think in absolutes when in reality, it can't be an absolute thought. It needs to be a range. When I think of neutral or when I think of good biomechanics or when I think of all of these different topics, it's not one perfect position. It is a range of acceptable positions. And I'm trying to filter them into that range of acceptable positions. Nobody can tell me, come on here and try to argue with me. I will shit on you that if you have an extremely upper, like your trap is literally in your fucking ear that you can develop more force in a punch than if it was centrated through. We saw Connor, we see Sean, we see these guys that they don't have muscle. They don't have strength behind it. And they're knocking people the fuck out. Because of good biomechanics, you watch Sean O'Malley, you watch Conor McGregor as they strike, their shoulders are extremely stable, which can increase rigidity as they go through and can transmit the force ahead of time. That's just literally just good biomechanics. And it's not the exact same position every time, but it's an acceptable range of positions, right? It's one of my favorite things that I think I've ever done in my entire career so far was our boxing coach, Alan Veers, one of the best boxing coaches I think in the country. He was showing me this drill and he was holding these, he's having his athletes hold at end range, this, this, uh, essentially they'd throw a two or, or three or whatever. And he would hold them at end range. You'd have to overload the isometric to try to get comfortable in the position. And I started noticing a couple of our athletes, they're just dipping in with their lumbar spine into lumbar extension versus keeping a good canister as they're throwing these different movements. So that's a position where. I immediately looked at Alan. I'm like, do you care if I fix a couple things? Let me come back to that later. That idea where don't just fucking fix shit unless you talk to the coach first. You're not a skill coach as a strength conditioning coach or a healthcare practitioner. That's not your job. You need to talk to the coach before you even talk to the athlete about it. Back to what we're doing. So I I asked Alan, I'm like, hey, dude, do you care if I fix some stuff? I fixed their lumbar, their excessive lumbar lordosis that they were doing into dipping into excessive extension. And he immediately felt a difference in their pop, which way they were doing. And I'm like, that's an immediate buy-in from a skill coach of, hey, these proper biomechanics work. If they can stabilize their trunk, they can transmit more force. That's, That's just textbook. Stable core, everything else pulls off of it. You can develop more force. Yeah. And as much as that, that context is immediately appropriate and I, I don't dispute your, your logic as far as a stable, uh, what's the, what's the common it's, uh, can't stable. shoot a cannon out of a canoe. No, there's one. stable, um, proximal stability equals That's distal mobility. Yep. Proximal stability equals distal mobility. So I, I, I don't refute that. And I, I agree with that, but 
There's also an instance that happens and it's happened on repeat and you probably see every day in the weight room. You change somebody's technique on something and they immediately get worse on it. Right. Mm -hmm. So let's take your example and let's say, for instance, you, you cue these people up and then they perform your more biomechanically efficient way, but they're not as good at it. Right. And so that's also a skill as a coach Mm -hmm. to observe and see, are they not as good at it because it doesn't lean into their own individual strength and superpowers, or are they not as good at it because it is new and they're worse at a new skill, but it has a way higher ceiling. Right. Mm -hmm. I I, I encounter this. And the number one example I give is bench press. Right. (laughs) Any any high school athlete, (laughs) any college guy that or or guy that thinks he's macho and loves to bench press. Right. Sure. Like, oh, I've put up 250 before and blah, blah, blah. And then I was like, okay, well, let's let's look at this. I see him bench and the shoulders are super anteriorly rotated. He's shrugging out everything, et cetera. And then I was like, all right, we got to change a couple of these things. Like, let's change your grip width. Let's pack your lats let's create total body tension and he's like well, i could barely get 225 like that you know and it's like for sure in performance was negatively impacted but let's practice this way for six months and see your max go to 275 right mm-hmm. so that's the kind of nuance that that i think um was almost the original discussion that we were talking about is like knowing when and where to apply that context like some shit that you suggest is simply not going to work for the athlete in front of you, right? It's just, it's just not appropriate. And it takes a lot of experience. It takes a lot of, of critical thought to know when or where to apply that. But some of it is going to work. It's just going to work six months down the line versus mm-hmm. in this five weeks we have before fight. It's delayed gratification, which is one of the hardest things to sell to an athlete. Yeah. Uh, right. Like, and, and it's honestly one of the hardest part about my job. I'm sure it's one of the hardest part about your job where, Hey, I'm going to fix something right now and I need you to trust me. And you might, you might yeah. not, and there's going to be bumps up and down the road and, and you're going to have bad days where like, if I'm fixing your dead, your deadlift, Hey, Sometimes I'm not going to let you deadlift more than 225 when you were hitting three three thirty before. Sometimes yeah. I just won't let you do it, but you have a history of lumbar disc path and radiating pain into your ass. I'm sorry, but I'm not going to let you lift on dysfunction when it's causing actual symptoms right now. Well, that's, that's going back to simply our absolute capacity versus functional capacity argument. Like right. That. Which is this entire argument. That's, that's why like I, I equate the argument we're having to functional capacity just versus absolute capacity, absolute capacity in a movement skill or a movement learning standpoint is just let the, the athletes, the athlete, they're just going to do things. Why are we even like, why are we even coaching them? If that's what we believe, honestly, that that's, that's what I think with the people that say that I'm like, well, then why do we have coaches in the first place? Why do coaches exist? Like it's very meta to think about, but if, if the athletes, sure. if they're fine, no matter what then, then aren't we just wasted money? Yeah. Or we can think about the functional capacity of there are things that we know for the vast majority of people are going to be better than other things. I'm a statistics guy. I'm going to play the numbers. If we keep the same exact example, if I have a centrated shoulder blade versus a upwardly translated or a decentrated shoulder blade, I know one for the vast majority of people is going to lead to better outcomes than others. It's on me to figure out, is this person the vast majority of people or is this one an outlier that I need to let them do you? I need to let them be a show pony and do their thing. 
which that's that's just called being a good coach. Right. And say, and then and then let's isolate that point even more. Like that's that's the the skill of being a great coach, right? Like it's, you're not a great coach because you know the technique. You're not a great coach because no, that's the you have bare all minimum. the certifications. You're not all the yeah, exactly. You're not a great coach because you work hard. Like I see that one in strength and conditioning all the fucking time. Uh, you're not a great coach because you open the facility at five and close it at nine. Yeah. That doesn't make you a great coach, and it probably doesn't make you a good person. But besides the fact, <laughs> but I digress, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> The great part comes in how and when do you apply it? Like we've talked about this with continuing education. We've talked about this with tools in your tool belt. We've talked about this. And I think now we're finally having a, a skill and technical tactical or in a discussion about this, right? And as much as in strength and conditioning or healthcare, we live in the biomechanically efficient, the statistics, the research driven realm. I think the the special thing about skill coaches is they live in that other realm. They lived in the, they live in the performance realm of when do I apply what technique, how do I change mm-hmm. this movement? And in, in this context, is this going to help or hurt this athlete? Like that is the, the mastery part in that section. So mm-hmm. as an interesting parallel to think like in both scenarios, the, contextual analysis and action is what separates you, but it's a contextual analysis and action based off different inputs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, that's weird to think about in a skill coach though, because you're right that that's the, what they live in and they are so much better that than everybody else in the performance Pentagon at yeah. that one thing of knowing when to use what modality. Because that's the only way you can make a name as a skill coach is yeah. knowing how to best either you have in a fucking amazing system. You have like a, uh, like a, I think John, no, not John Wooden. Um, anyways, you have a really good system that people like uh, Nick Saban that yeah. people filter into. And you know, if you go to Alabama, you're going to be fucking tough. You're going to do this and you got to fit the mold. Yeah. Or you have the other coaches like, like I like to talk about like Santino where he knows how to coach each athlete individually to their strengths. Those are the only two ways to make a name for yourself as a skill coach. You can't, you you can't be great and not do one of those two things. Yeah. And, and I mean, I think there's a, there's a gray area there too, where skill coaches make their name off of athletes, which is an interesting. That's a fucked up dynamic. (laughs) Yeah. It's a very interesting (laughs) dynamic in the, in the sense of, there's no isolating, and, and we've talked about this before. There's no isolating and quote unquote proving because of or in spite of, right? There, there, there's just simply no way to do that because how do coaches get their credibility? Yeah. How their athletes perform? Mm-hmm. Why do their athletes perform the way they do is so multifactorial, and there can be a lot of common threads, right? Like Trevor Whitman three UFC championships, a continued legacy of exclusive success. I can't say that's because Trevor, Trevor Whitman is a wizard exclusively. I think he is. I, I happen to be of the opinion that I think he's really fucking good at MMA coaching and technical tactical analysis. Right. But it's also because he works with fucking special people. Mm-hmm. Like it, it, it's not exclusively due to his coaching. And, I, and a lot of times it's not exclusively due to his athletes actions. It's a mixture of both, but you follow the common thread of, all right, 
this coach has continually proved himself through experience and through um, adherence to their system, which I think is another real, real nuance to analyze skill. And maybe that's really my filter is like, does this coach regurgitate or does this coach genuinely innovate? Right. Well, and an even crazier thing to think about is people think that Trevor's a, is Trevor a worse coach because all three of those guys are on uh, all three, two guys and one girl are on losing streaks. All of them are on a losing streak right now. Yeah. All of his three main people. It's Does that make Trevor Usman's on a losing streak? I know that's obscene to think. I, yeah, that's obscene to think about. Um, but is he a worse coach? Because it's, it's so fucked up that we judge coaches based off of that, but there's really no other metric to really judge it off of. Yeah. Uh, is your athlete success, but it's such a multifactorial approach just because Kamaru Usman got literally, it was the perfect high kick. It was yeah. the perfect high kick just because that happened. Is Trevor a worse coach because his athlete lost? Fuck no. Yeah. Trevor Whitman's one of the top three coaches and probably in MMA history. But is that the perception though? Which it is, but that's fucked. Right. <laughs> that's what I'm trying yeah. to get across is that right. that's, such, that's such a fucking crazy idea that people can think that, Oh, he's lost a yeah. step. Oh, he's not as good of a coach when his athlete just dominated for 19 fucking straight minutes. He made one mistake. Trevor's not even the one in the cage, yeah. but you think he's a worse coach because a perfect thing happened. Yeah. It, it, it's wild. And like, I, I make the analogy to quarterbacks in the NFL all the time. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, fucking quarterback specific stats don't matter. The question that you ask is, do they win games? Do it's they the Peyton, win games? It's the Peyton Manning versus Tom Brady argument that I've had my entire lo- life as a Colts fan. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I will say to this day, Peyton Manning is the better quarterback. Tom Brady is, is the, the best man. winner. Yeah. In potential, him and Michael Jordan are the yeah. two best winners in all of sports ever. They might not be the best player. That's the same with the LeBron and the Michael Jordan argument. Yeah. LeBron might have all the stats. That's cool. Whatever. Michael Jordan's the best winner to ever play the game of fucking basketball. Tom Brady is the best winner to ever play the game of football. And guess what? If I'm going into battle in a Super Bowl, it pains me to say this. I'm literally getting chills. I have goosebumps about to say this. I'd rather have Tom Brady than Peyton Manning (laughs) because Tom Brady's going to win that game. Yeah. It's a, it's a hard, uh, decision to make. And the little sidebar, one of the most, one of the more badass. Bro, we are on a massive sidebar right now. Sure. But <laughs> one of the, the more savage quotes I've heard in a long time in the UFC, um, was from one of my athletes, Cody Brundage. Um, after he had his most recent knockout, he, uh, he got on the mic and he's like, man, there was all this smack talk about, he's just a wrestler. He's just that he's like, no motherfucker, I'm just a winner. And I was like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's that's dope. That's fucking that's sick. Dope. Right? So it's like the and that's kind of where we get into the Tim Grover type of isolated uh book and things. It's like what does it take to to find that mentality to get that that winner attitude and then how uniquely important is that? Like Peyton Manning doesn't have 0% of that by any means. You know, he has a significant amount of, you know, dominating, winning, cleaner, right. quote unquote, type of behavior. Just not as much as Tom Brady. Right. He's got 98%, but 98% isn't hundred. Right. So, so where's the, the, the line. Um, and that's a good, like 
segue into skill coaching and we can kind of get back on topic. Maybe, maybe we'll (laughs) climb our way back there, but that's been the most impressive thing to me watching Mark Montoya at factory X. He's such an emotionally intelligent coach, not in the sense of like, he knows what buttons to push in this and that, but he knows the athlete in front of him. He knows what they need in their performance paradigm, not from just like a technical tactical approach. He knows that too, but from a challenge approach from a, um, who should they match up with a sparring on sparring day approach. He knows what is, what's the missing link in this person's armor that I'm not only going to tell them, but I'm going to expose to them and get them to agree with me. And then we can move forward. Mm-hmm. Right? He knows what motivates them. Like I sure. have a cool, a cool story. I have a, a, I feel like I have a, sounds like I have a man crush on this guy. Santino's just a good dude, <laughs> but I was work. He referred me over an athlete. This was, I think my first year in, in what I was doing in warrior sports wellness, referred me over an athlete and he point blank said, he sat me down. He's like, you can't, you can't coach this athlete. Like you coach other athletes. Like they need positive reinforcement. You can't be negative. I've done that multiple times. I've found out through the ringer. The only way to motivate them is to be positive. You you can't, you can pick out the different small points and nitpick them a little bit. But if you're just yelling at them and doing and shouting at them or telling them they're wrong, they're going to turn off. And if you want them to turn off and not want to train with you, then do that. But if you want them to succeed, if you want them to get better, if you want to build a good relationship, you have to be positive with this athlete. And he's never said that to me before, but for him to know that and to understand that concept, it, it was like a light bulb in my head. I'm like, Oh, I'm not the only one that thinks about this shit. This is what, this is what good people should think about. This is what you need to do to be successful is to understand what motivates your athletes, understand what gets them going, understand how they learn too, which is another thing we could talk about is under, we're talking about biomechanical efficiency and motor learning. How does your athlete learn? Like, are we, are they going to listen to you? Are they, are they a visual learner? Do you need to be kinesthetic with them? Do like, there's so many different ways and it doesn't just come down to taking a test and figuring it out right there. <laughs> it, 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 it comes from making a relationship and really trusting that athlete and having a relationship back and forth of this is what I know is best for this athlete because my only goal right now is to make that person as best as they possibly can, which it sounds like Mark fucking crushes. No, he does a really good job of that. But then like we can go back to a couple of podcasts ago, we ranked our most important training paradigm factors, right? And both of us was confidence, number one, right? So not only do I need to know what they need physically and how to supply that or address that, but like, how can I do that in a way that instills confidence, confidence in their own preparation, confidence in my ability to get them where they need to go, confidence in their ability to adhere and trust the training process. Like there's so many different avenues to that. And I mean, one of the smallest and probably most insignificant things we can do for an athlete as far as confidence or as far as trusting training process is change our exercise selection, right? Like, um, that's why I'm a really big fan of of some of the things we do. Like if we have a group of MMA MMA athletes in front of us, we give them squat choice, right? Mm -hmm. You can front squat, you can back squat, you can goblet squat, you can trap bar squat, you can choose any modality. The one that makes you feel fucking good. Right. Mm-hmm. And like, obviously within parameters of don't fucking hurt yourself or whatever, but we had an athlete a while back that like, again, as much as I 
I, I won't say a bore because I, I like performing them and I think they can be done well, but back squats. As long as I don't think back squats are super appropriate for the MMA athlete. We had somebody that literally fed off how well he did in his back squats. That mm -hmm. was going to determine the rest of his training week, right? So I'm going to add fuel to that fire. I'm going to give him that leeway and we're going to nail that movement so that he can trust the training process. He can build more confidence in those own abilities. He can build more confidence in our training approach, right? So that's an interesting point as far as, I guess, modeling your training mm -hmm. approach towards the athlete. Yeah. No, I just had an athlete recently. So I, that's how, what well, you talk about back squats. That's how I feel about cleans. You know yeah. that. Yep. I just had an athlete come up to me. He was an ex-college football player, big dude. He's like, I've never, I feel like I can finally, his words were, I feel like I can finally do it. I've never felt like I could do it right. I've never felt stronger than when I was cleaning that weight. I just knew I was doing it wrong. Can we focus on cleans? Yeah. I've never had anybody ever ask me that outside of my football players. I'm like, Oh, you just said the magic words. Now I get to actually teach the thing that I always get. Like people tell me, no. Oh, you need to do cleans. You need to do cleans. Now I actually have a reason to fucking do it because it makes sense. That athlete wants to do it and they just identified it as their superpower. Right. Let's fucking lock that shit down and make them feel like Superman. The costs, the potential costs outweigh almost everything outside of them potentially hurting themselves, like doing right form if that's going to make them feel the best they possibly can, because they're going to walk into the ring or the cage, like their shit don't stink. And they're going to go out there looking for blood for sure. But what eliminates a lot of that potential injury risk or the, the technical downside of that is the humility of which they came to you with it. Right. Like hundred percent. Right. Like, Hey, I've never felt better than when I'm clean and really heavy or when I've done it. Well, can you help me lock this shit down? Right. It's like, that's, that's, Again, a mature approach. I'm not saying like I can clean a fucking lot. I feel best when I clean. Let me clean. Right. That's a different approach. Right. That's a that's a conversation that needs to be had versus an athlete coming to you saying, hey, can we work on this? Because I know that, you know, and you can get me better at this, but I also know that I'm not where I need to be with it. Right. So I think that that's the nuance or that that's the, the point that really makes it accessible for that athlete, the person. It's a, there's an interesting. Um, other side of that story too, where it's like, you can't just give in to your athletes, every whims and wish. That's right? true. Like, yeah. That happens like, too much. Right. I can't tell you how many MMA athletes I, I that just want to come and bodybuild. They want to yeah. look good. They, they want to only use the Proteus or not the Proteus, the, uh, the, I actually like, I don't dislike the Proteus, but, uh, the fit lights the, all right. they want to do is touch the fit lights and that's, what's going to make them win their fight. Right. Right. Like th there's a fine line there of like, all right, we're not just trying to look like Gordon Ryan. That's not our, our training plan. You yeah. know, like, right. And you're not going to look like him without some sauce anyway, but that's true. Yeah. So <laughs> no other thought on that, dude, that <laughs> <laughs> you just thrown off thought about Gordon Ryan. Like, Oh, that's a big dude. dude. I, I do have to admit that I've looked at more pictures of Gordon Ryan that are necessary. But yeah. He's a big old fucking dude. He's the, the best grappler to have ever walked this planet. Yeah. <laughs> but Hey, if you got to, you want to learn how to actually like train outside of bodybuilding, hit up building a fighter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we got you. We got the, <laughs> the high performance stick. Let's go. Yeah. Cause talk about like working until the point of breaking down, which I feel like was in my head 
was the beginning of this entire discussion, this entire argument, is, bro, how much time has he got left if he only keeps training like a bodybuilder and having the workload he's got? I don't know. I don't, unless he just keeps taking all of the different Mexican supplements, <laughs> like how are your tendon, how can your tendon health like withstand that? How can your ligaments withstand that? How can your joints withstand that from well, the stress the, that he puts on top of it? Yeah. And that's the Tiger Woods scenario, right? Like Tiger Woods was the fucking goat until yeah. he wasn't. Until well, he hey, wasn't. He's still the fucking goat. He's just not on top of the world <laughs> right now. He's the greatest golfer to ever play the game. Sure. People, how name uh I will say in a non-contact sport, name somebody else that was more feared than Tiger Woods. Sure, that gets into a different argument like that. Does that make <laughs> you go? But but he's not at the top anymore, right? Where yeah. most golf athletes at his age are in their prime. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like, uh, yes, he accomplished a lot while he was young. And I think he accomplished a lot because he was young, but, and he had crazy training regiments and this and that, and he attacked golf. Like a lot of other professional athletes attack their contact sport, but what is the, you know, physical, emotional cost to all of that? And like, he's the, the shining person, personal, the, <laughs> the shining example of self-implosion. Right. Yeah, yeah. So we'll see, you know, we'll see. I, I'm, I'm curious to see where, where the, the training seven days a week, no fucking days off Gordon Ryan, um, experience leads us, which I, I agree with the little self-regulation that he does. And sure. I think this can be our final point because we're branching, but, um, the other thing I fucking have is watching an Instagram and how much he's traveling. I was like, are you rolling every fucking day doing all of that shit too? Like, are, and no, I think rolling. he stopped rolling seven days a week since ADCC. Cause I, yeah. I, I saw a post. He went on his first vacation in like six years or some shit like that. No, oh, well, whatever. I, I, I don't need to know every detail about Gordon Ryan's life, even though, but it is a worthwhile point to talk about where, cause that was shit. That was my post today on building a fighter was the, not every practice has to be a hundred percent. That's a, a yeah. you talked about. He trains seven days a week. You can train seven days a week. If three of those days are at a three out of 10 and you're just doing technique a little bit. Yeah. That's auto-regulation and like, and you can be good and bad at auto-regulation. The problem is most people are really bad at. Yeah. Yeah, that's the biggest, my biggest pet peeve is somebody's like, oh, that's a five. And I, yeah. they have a heart strap on. It's in the fucking red zone. I'm like, you fucking liar. Dude, I have very, <laughs> I, I had a very proud dad moment. Um, one of my athletes is traveling to another fight and he has a fight in, you know, 14 days. Um, but he's like, he's like, man, if I send you a video of the, the weight room or the hotel gym, can you write me something? Because if you don't write me something, I'm just going to kill myself. I'm like, <laughs> I was like, thank you, man. Thank you. That is fucking a proud dad moment right there. Self-awareness on point. Right. Cool. <laughs> well, sweet. Well, that, yeah, I don't know what the, that turned ep- into a freestyle. I don't I know what saying, we're going to title know what this the, I don't know what the end uh, theme of that episode was. Be a good fucking coach, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That be better. <laughs> this is going to be titled be better. The coaching edition, <laughs> but if you guys got to get in touch with us, all of our information is in the show notes, both Instagrams and emails. We have programs available, strength conditioning, low back pain programs. We're getting the courses out here soon to learn how to be a building a fighter coach. 
But all of that is available at buildingafighter.com. And as always, it's Dr. Austin Shane. Alex Friedman. And we are out.